Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And we're back. Back again. <laughs> it's been a week. This is going to be a very musically inclined season, I feel. Yeah, we'll, we'll try to uh, kind of kick off uh, a little bit more of our musical inclinations as the season wears on. <gasps> well, folks. We'll get back to our musical inclinations later. And feel free to send us clips of pop songs you'd like to hear us butcher in future episodes. But when last we left, we were discussing the wide world of peritoneal dialysis, and we left you right at a cliffhanger. What about hemodialysis, you asked? That's the only kind I know. <laughs> that is, that's the one... It's been given a lot of press lately because of how there are certain companies that are abusing their privilege as dialysis centers. And if you're an adult, which is, you know, the, the more visible part of medicine in our current world, chances are if something happens to your kidneys where you need something to substitute for your kidneys, you're going to do hemodialysis rather than peritoneal dialysis. So seeds of hemodialysis-based nephrology were planted during World War II and then nurtured in a favorable environment of post-war golden years of research funding because they grew up in a time of researching shock, hemorrhage, crush injury, blood transfusion, fluid replacement, fluid replacement and elimination, all of which were directly relevant to wartime injuries and kidney function. I, I love... You know, they say like mother, the, 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 the mother of invention is necessity. 
they didn't have any good solutions for all these things that were just ravaging human beings. Um, these were giant uh, and common causes of death at the time. That's, I'm so glad you brought that up because you are going to love this gentleman yeah. I'm about to tell you about. 1943, Willem right. Kolff and Hendrik Burke introduced the rotating drum hemodialysis system that used cellophane membranes and an immersion bath and the first recovery of an acute renal failure patient. But that's skipping over a ton of super exciting details, right? Kolf was just starting his experiments wow. on yeah. renal failure patients when World War II broke out. The Nazis invaded the Netherlands and this made life fairly dangerous for Kolf, who was Jewish. So while continuing to work under Nazi scrutiny in the occupied Netherlands, he constructed the very first dialysis machine using any materials he could find. And when I say any materials, he pierced holes in sausage skin casings to make the membrane filter. He collected old cans of orange juice to hold the blood. He, he used a washing machine drum to whirl the blood around and fling it through the filter to clean it. This is MacGyver medicine at its finest. You guys, this, wow. this is exactly why we call them the greatest <laughs> generation. <laughs> it was, you know, they didn't have, you know, some of the materials that we have today, plastics and synthetic membranes and, you know, automated pumps um, and even access to the, to electricity to the degree that we had, they made do with, with what they had. It was like, you know what? I need to set up dialysis on this person or they're going to die. Here's how I'm going to do it. I feel like Kolf was sitting alone in his bachelor pad, drinking some orange juice, eating a sausage, and just going, how do I treat these kidney patients? And then all of a sudden his laundry was done and a little light bulb went off above his head. Now, to be fair, early results had some limited success. <laughs> you know, the first 16 patients died. I love but, it. But the 17th. Yeah. On 11th September, 1945, a 67-year-old woman, yeah. Sophia Schaffstadt, a Nazi, a Nazi collaborator, was admitted to Campen Hospital. She went into a coma, and Kolf was told, you know, fix her in, you know, a German accent, a heavy German accent. Okay. Well, uh, I'm not even going to try. It's not, you want helmet? Helmet? Do you want to? I can try. Let me let me cue up the proper thing right here. All right. All right. Augustus All right. Blue. So we're us, we're going in. into the German the German accent, although this is this is kind of Austrian. Oh, helmet! Can you tell us how that conversation went down? Oh, uh, absolutely! I present a 67-year-old woman who is admitted to Campen Hospital, suffering from acute cholecystitis with jaundice and acute renal failure with anuria, which has been considered to be caused by treatment with sulfonamide. You will fix her, or you will die. Yeah. Due to the buildup of urea in her system from not being able to urinate, she went into a coma. Kolf and Burke, despite the fact that the previous 16 <laughs> patients had so. died, had, I don't know, maybe changed orange juice brands or sausage skins, but they, they connected her to the dialyzer and they had continued tweaking this. And after 11 hours of dialysis, she came to, <laughs> and the story you would think can't possibly get better but it does her first words 
after awakening from this coma were, I'm going to divorce my husband. <laughs> she comes in, Nazi collaborator. Her husband what? was a <laughs> anti-Nazi protester. Right. Uh, okay. He was, he uh, was working actively I, against the Nazis. <laughs> so she goes into a coma. She's brought to this occupied hospital, yeah. hooked up, literally the first person to ever successfully be treated oh, with dialysis, well, wakes up from a coma, and the first thing she can think of to say is, I'm going to divorce my husband. And she did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and good for that guy, because, dude, Nazi collaborators. Horrible. Now, Kolf, after this worked, he then managed to escape Nazi-occupied Netherlands, and he came to the United States, and he actually built five more rotating drum dialysis machines and basically shipped them around the world and shared all his plans and it became the most popular early version of an artificial kidney now simultaneously two other folks had developed their own dialysis machines that just yeah. never got the recognition that Kolfs did one of them was Nils Allwell in Sweden who uh, again, they showed based on the differences in design, they all were independent. The other was Gordon Murray, a surgeon in Toronto. His machine basically never came to anything because everybody in Canada was just like, eh, yeah, but really, that's so expensive to just treat one or two patients. Go back to like your regular surgical work. And he's like, oh, okay. So it was a side hustle for him was toying around with it. And it was never actively Aww. used to treat live humans. But it was still, again, three dialysis machines were all invented at the same time, but only one rose to prominence. Now, let's jump a couple of years forward. And the high rate of death in military casualties from renal failure had been noted not only in the Second World War, but again in the early part of the Korean War, when statistics released to us report 80 to 90% of soldiers with acute renal failure wow. died. Okay. So th this was a time when if your kidney shut down, you were just, you were screwed. There's an analogy in this day and age with liver failure. People go into acute liver failure in this day and age because we don't have a suitable replacement for the liver the way that we have with dialysis for kidneys. Their expectation for mortality is really high. And if it persists for long enough, then it's a transplant or you die. So that's it's an analogy to that previous age that we're, we're having the same struggles with the liver right now. In the Korean War, because of this high rate of fatality, a specialist kidney center was established under the U.S. Army Surgical Research Team at the 11th Evacuation Hospital. Basically, yeah. MASH. <laughs> All right? For those of you who still remember the show MASH, they would have had an artificial kidney somewhere in one of those right. tents. A.K.A. hemodialysis. And soon after, now remember, the artificial kidney had only been invented in 1944, mm. and they had shipped one of these early models out to Korea in 1952. Yeah, I, I want to put a caveat here, and um, I want to say something. Most people think of dialysis as a very permanent thing, you know, that once your kidneys go out, you're done. But the vast majority of uh people who need dialysis, it's for acute kidney failure. The kidneys all of a sudden shut down because you have something like sepsis uh, or acute dehydration or drug injury. And if you kind of bridge their bodies for a while, the vast majority of them 
you know, the kidneys will be able to recover and they can come off of dialysis. And that's why in cases like, you know, you have maybe sepsis from a gunshot injury and then they go into renal failure or poisoning, you can actually get these soldiers through the initial acute kidney injury or what they call AKI and get them off of dialysis and back to regular life. Caveat to the caveat, some of those statistics are shifting as the population ages, but we'll get there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So (laughs) the Kolf Brigham dialyzer used in Korea was a modified version of Kolf's rotating drum machine, now with, you know, proper membranes and not sausage skins or orange juice skins. (laughs) All the more pity. No, I am so impressed with him for this. Really, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing, I was looking down at my breakfast cereal this morning and just thinking what a waste I've made of my life. (laughs) And this guy... Yeah. That he was looking at his breakfast and he's like, I'm going to save millions of lives. And I'm like, you know. I wonder what's mm, on Netflix today. Yeah. (laughs) Huge props. So it it was a technical marvel that the team who had received it were really just learning to use. It had an open bath and no means of adjusting the filter rate other than by having somebody stand over the tub and add glucose to the bath. So technicians, doctors, and nurses had to be in attendance for the entire length of each treatment of a single patient. And it was used 72 times on 31 patients in the last eight months of the Korean War. But all of those were so successful that it convinced others on the mainland that dialysis had a place in mainstream medicine. Yeah, yeah. And this is what happens a lot of the time with a brand new technology, right? You you have a long-standing belief or you, at that point they had data that once these people went into this degree of renal failure, you know, you just, you called the chaplain and that's it. Um, and so that was a scary proposal. You're taking kind of a hopeless situation and you're kind of daring Sometimes to inject some hope into it. Now, yeah. Another neat aspect of this is people with incurable kidney disease need frequent dialysis. So a better version of Kolf's machine provided this, but every time patients were connected, doctors had to put needles in their arms and their blood vessels could soon become scarred, damaged, or burst from all the needles. And then in the late 1950s, Dr. Belding Scribner Mm -hmm. found a solution. He put a tiny little tap in the patient's arm made of a new material that had been invented called Teflon used to line non-stick cookware. This Still tap, used to line which was called non-stick a shunt, cookware. would never get rusty, <laughs> would have a much lower rate of becoming infected, and could then be connected to the dialysis machine easily via plastic pipes. So remember, we've now created our first dialysis with orange juice, sausages, a washing machine, and Teflon. What are you doing with Dang. your day? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, now the real so, question so after that. Dialysis has now become a accepted mainstream treatment at this point in history. How do you choose who goes on it? Well, every country had its own method of approaching it. For example, in the United Kingdom, the common approach was really just to take on the next available patient if there was space while all others died. It was very much come first served, and it was uh, given through, I guess, the proverb or aphorism, if the dustman cometh before the duke, the duke returneth to dust. Wow. Now, here us, of course, we were far more egalitarian. Yeah, yeah. So the Seattle, in 1962, the Seattle Artificial Kidney Center 
charged a group of doctors, nurses, community, and civic leaders to develop a way to allocate who could be placed on HD machines. And at first, they at first they just limited this to an age range of 18 to 45, and then yeah. they promptly got vastly overwhelmed by the number of people with renal failure. So a series of medical, social, and psychological assessments began to complicate things in rationing care, and the committee agreed that social worth and assessment of the patient's anticipated contribution to society would be the primary criteria for determining who would receive life-sustaining treatment. Stop cringing if you're a Democrat or salivating if you're a Republican. I'm going to go into more detail. Those individuals deemed highly valuable to society would receive dialysis yeah. ostensibly to facilitate their physical rehabilitation and their return to their jobs, families, and civic duties. Social worth, however, is kind of a subjective way of measuring things and draws a nice parallel uh, with our current immigration debate. Um, yeah. So bioethicists immediately condemned this practice and decried the Life and Death Committee as the God Squad. These seven anonymous individuals, and they had to be anonymous, were given the task of judging between candidates put forward. So everyone could be put forward, but only a few would be allowed to go on. And this story is in an amazing NBC documentary called Who Shall Live from 1965. And there will be a link in the show notes to that full documentary, which is now on YouTube. We have bioethicists in medicine for reasons such as this. I think we all recognize that on rare occasion, and it's very, very rare, we run out of resources to the point where you know, there's a hundred people who need a specific type of treatment and, you know, there's only whatever, 20 or 30 of that treatment available, whether it's an antibiotic or it's a machine like dialysis um, or a procedure and there's a limited number of surgeons um, or oxygen in, in really horrible like war-torn and desolate areas. It is a horrible, horrible decision to have to make and it, it really should be done in an ethical and kind fashion that doesn't have anything to do with the quote-unquote worth of a person and that has everything to do with like availability and who we can get care to and how quickly and who is the most likely to benefit um, from the therapy directly in terms of like what patient, if we use this therapy, will have the best chance of survival um, if, we, if we administer this therapy. So it's a whole nother talk. We can do a bioethic episode if you guys feel up for it. It's very sticky and it's difficult to navigate, but it's an important thing to learn for every single person, doctor, nurse, who takes care of patients. So in response to the God Squad and this documentary, and I really do encourage you guys to go and watch it, it's it has a lot of applications to multiple debates going on today from Sarah Palin's death panels and palliative care to the burgeoning cost of healthcare to even to a way to view how the immigration debate is being looked at in terms of merit, who's allowed to get in versus who's allowed to get treated. So in response to all these concerns, a committee on chronic kidney disease 
uh, chaired by Carl Gottschalk, convened in 1967 and recommended federal funding for treatment of all patients with end-stage renal disease. This is how we got universal health care for dialysis. Now, the problem with this committee in 1967, it made a couple of assumptions that uh, we have now to be proven eminently false. But at the time, it assumed most patients suitable for dialysis would be under age 54 with few, if any, comorbid conditions. (laughs) (laughs) That, oh, wow. Um, And and that's a... Uh, their prediction was wrong. How about, is that fair to say? So very, very wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Just not, not even remotely, but yeah, but Congress did codify the lifelong subsidization of eligible patients with end-stage renal disease. So they don't completely cover it. It covers about 80% of the cost of dialysis. And this was signed into law in 1972 by everyone's favorite honest president, Richard Nixon. It's kind of an example of like the dichotomy of Richard Nixon, right? You know, this is the guy who, you know, he signed this wonderful, you know, universal kidney care bill into law. He created the EPA and under his administration, you know, we had things like Title IX, <laughs> where we had, you know, protections based on gender. We often think of him as, oh my gosh, what a terrible and failed presidency. But there were some amazing measures which took place under his administration. And this was just one of them. So the main idea behind this law in 1972 is that it would subsidize and cover treatment for end-stage kidney disease for all Americans eligible for Social Security. And even at that time, the director of the National Institute of Health, James Shannon, wrote to the Surgeon General about the difficulties this would create. Lives could be saved, but at a very high cost to individuals and the country. So remember how we talked about the God Squad determining who was valuable to society and could return to their families and civic duties? Those Mm -hmm. on dialysis aren't really likely to regain productivity and contribute civically. Uh, And that doesn't mean they can't, but dialysis itself does not necessarily result in workforce participation. And a recent review of the renal data in the U.S. from 2015 indicated there was a 71% unemployment rate among individuals aged 18 to 64 on dialysis. And the standardized mortality for people on dialysis has remained unchanged at 20% for the last 20 years. So among patients older than 75 who have a lot of extra conditions like heart failure or cancers or anything, dialysis doesn't give any kind of statistically significant survival advantage over just non-aggressive conservative renal care. So yes, it can keep you alive a bit longer, or it can replace your kidneys as a holding point, but it actually does not add significantly to your lifespan of any conditions other than kidney problems. Yeah, I I think it needs to be stressed. You know, this is a bridge to either something like transplant, or it is a, used to be much more commonly, a bridge to the kidney you know, getting better uh, with time. So in pediatrics, uh, we get very hopeful when kids go on dialysis. Usually they have acute kidney injury, either from um, 
you know, uh, sepsis is one of the most common ones. They get sick uh, with a bacterial infection. Another one is a condition called HUS or hemolytic uremic syndrome, which can happen after getting uh, diarrhea from a really nasty strain of E. coli or Shigella. You know, you, you give them dialysis and support them for a little while, and the pathology that was harming the kidneys slowly resolves and, you know, the kids get better. Even in some cases with nephrotic syndrome, um, when they go to dialysis, they can get better. So um, it, you either need to give dialysis with some sort of an endpoint that the kidneys are going to get better, or you have to say that, okay, well, we got to get you to transplant. Instead of now being designed as just a transitional holding place treatment, a lot of people are just going on dialysis for life because there are no, there are insufficient kidneys to transplant, or they have so many comorbidities that their kidneys are never able to adequately recover. And that's kind of where a large section of the ballooning world of healthcare costs are coming from is we are still subsidizing people who were never meant to be on dialysis this long. Short of instituting another right. God squad, you can't tell somebody it really is supposed to be dialysis. a temporary fix. They have to make the decision that they no longer want to commit to these. So how does hemodialysis work? We talked last time about what peritoneal dialysis is, where you just sort of marinate your organs to allow for fluid exchange. But in hemodialysis, your blood travels through tubes from your body into a dialysis machine. In the machine, it goes through a filter called a dialyzer, which has two parts, one for the blood and one for a washing fluid called dialysate. So basically, your blood goes on a little vacation or road trip outside your body and sits in a bath outside your body and exchanges some fluids and solutes. And then the new cleans blood where smaller waste products in the blood like urea, creatinine, and potassium pass through the membrane into the bath and are washed away. And the newly cleaned blood travels back through the tubes from the machine into your body. And this is normally done about three times a week for four hours at a time. Yeah, and uh, the sessions are much shorter. You know, this isn't one of those where you get hooked up for the entire night, the way you do with peritoneal dialysis. You just have that three or four hour period. Because the fluid exchange isn't as physiologic as it is in peritoneal dialysis, because in peritoneal dialysis, you have this kind of gradual fluid shift over the course of like eight or 10 hours while you sleep. That sudden shift of fluids and electrolytes can actually make people feel quite woozy and weak and not like themselves. So that's why often, you know, if you meet someone who's on dialysis, especially for a long time, they'll say they just feel kind of dull. And so it's not their fault. It's just what dialysis does. It, it does the work of the kidneys, just not as well as regular kidneys. It can also cause them to be a little bit loopy after dialysis, and that's because you can get something called dialysis disequilibrium, which typically occurs in a long period of dialysis or in the following hours where you've now removed a lot of these salts and extra things and sent the blood back in with just fluid, and that leads to other fluid shifts, notably from the brain to the body. And the last thing you want to lose fluid or solutes or anything from is the brain. So it can lead to kind of a swelling of the brain as solutes move down to balance out and the brain's left with a little bit too much water. To avoid this symptom, 
we now introduce dialysis in very short spells initially, even for patients who are incredibly uremic or confused. And this disequilibrium is more likely in patients with pre-existing brain disease or brain syndromes such as epilepsy or, or in very old or very young individuals or first treatments. So anytime you're going to have a large osmolar or osmotic shift, you have to watch for this kind of dangerous fluid movement away from the brain. And if you have a good technician, a good physician, you know, the fluids and electrolytes are being watched carefully uh, before dialysis is initiated so that the the right um, dialysis, uh, uh, what do you call it? The fluid exchange is prescribed, then the actual patient and the the fluid shifts are actually monitored while the patient is actually getting their dialysis, then you can avoid a lot of these or minimize a lot of these consequences, but you, it, you can't be perfect. I, I think it is important to say that, you know, if a company or a doctor or a hospital decides to set up dialysis as therapy, that it's really, really important that you know, they have the personnel, time, energy, the right equipment, and the right reagents to provide dialysis properly to their patients. Otherwise, genuinely, they're doing more harm than good. And because of the increased elderly population on dialysis and this problem with dialysis disequilibrium we've talking about, we're seeing a resurgence in popularity of peritoneal dialysis, which does not suffer from this kind of problem. Oh, that's really, really cool. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I hope it results in, you know, better care for patients. That's the biggest thing. Um, hemodialysis and compared to peritoneal dialysis, I have to say it's incredibly efficient. It's so fast that you can pull off a lot of fluid and get rid of a lot of uh, toxins in a hurry, as opposed to peritoneal dialysis, which is just, it's limited by um, the semi-permeability, the actual peritoneum. So that's it for hemodialysis and the conclusion kind of of our early intro to renal disease. There's a lot of nephrology conditions that we just didn't cover, and we'll save those for future episodes. You know, let's let's return to I think we're going to mostly do just the tips with journal clubs this year, but just for kicks, let's go ahead and jump into a just the tip since we have a little bit of time. Santosh, I had a lot of travels over this summer. I I bounced around between Azerbaijan, to which most of our audience is saying, I'm oh, sorry, where? <laughs> What? Bless you? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I'm hoping that, you know, our audience is, uh, you know, wonderful and um, educated and worldly. And that they, they know that countries order. such as Azerbaijan. To the east of the Arabian Peninsula, but not quite to Pakistan? But Let's Turkey, see, uh, Iran, Kazakhstan, maybe? Georgia. So I went to Azerbaijan and Georgia, stopped mm. off on the way home Turkey? in Qatar. It lies directly on the Caspian Sea. Oh, I see, I see. Okay, so this is the landmass that's between the Black and the Caspian Sea. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, beautiful. So we're north of Iran, uh, and, uh, and there's an isthmus of land between the Caspian and Black Sea. You got Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia, and just north of that, you jump into Russia. Exactly. Now, Azerbaijan is 
of very strongly influenced by Mediterranean culture, the food and the, it's a secular Islamic state. Um, so drinking is allowed, but a lot of people are going to mosques there. You don't really see a lot of women in the, uh, the hijab or the burqa or any of those people are still kind of out in what we think of as more Western clothing. Um, there is a thriving jazz music music scene in Azerbaijan, or at least in the capital, Baku. That's so cool. I, it surprised me a little. Not what I expected to find there. Uh, the food is incredible. It's very carb heavy. Mm-hmm. Lots of rice and a few like tomato and cucumber salads. <laughs> the it was excellent. One of my favorite dishes was That's something so called cool. shah plov or king pilaf, where they take the this uh, rice and they cook it in oil with dates and lamb. So you have like a sweet and savory rice, and that's all wrapped uh, up in a piece of this lavash flatbread. And that bread is then deep fried, so it's like crispy surrounding an oily rice, which has these tastes okay. of sweetness and meat in it. It's incredible. And you cannot move after eating like more than a few bites, but it's totally worth it. Um, we did mention briefly in the previous time their Yanar dog, the mountain that's on fire. Um, and there was a lot of Zoroastrians who used to live in the area. So it's, there's a lot of associations, not with fire worshiping as a cult, but a strong affinity (laughs) for flame (laughs) in Azerbaijan and their biggest architectural, uh, thing in the capital Baku are three flame-shaped towers, the flame towers upon which they project different images, whether they're flames or pouring water nightly. And Baku actually translates to the city of flame or the city of wind. So I'm like, oh, the windy city, we're kin, but also their city's on fire. (laughs) Uh, So it was a lot of fun. We stopped to have Turkish ice cream. We explored the... Up, we explored a small copper mining town northeast of Baku called Lahik. And I got to tell you, that's where I learned that uh, my social game oh, is not up to par. Because I went to one small little tea house in, in this copper town, Lahik, where the owner served us uh, four different cups of floral tea. One was purple, one was yellow. One was orange and one was red, each sweetened with just the tiniest hint of pomegranate molasses. And he offered us one additional tea for what he called the social media discount, meaning we got a pot of tea if we agreed to like, subscribe, and follow his Instagram channel. And then he would he would follow ours. And he took a whole bunch of photos for my Instagram yeah. on his camera, teaching me as a 50 year old man, he's teaching me how to use social media. And I got news for you. He's doing it way better. <laughs> I love it when I get one up by 65 year old Azerbaijani men. And we also uh, did manage to start a new trend. So if you remember planking and the ice bucket challenge and all those different things, uh, my colleagues and I, who were on this trip, <laughs> began a new trend that posing as Jeff Goldblum did in Jurassic Park with, you know, lying on your side, one leg straight, one leg crossed yeah. behind it. If you have a button down shirt, that button slightly opened. And we proceeded to take some version of us gold blooming in multiple oh, locales. Okay. Trip. I encourage all of you out there to 
submit your own traveling hashtag gold blooming photos. Oh, yeah. And uh, let's make it a thing. <laughs> I can't think of anything more wholesome, dude. Gold bloom is just so wonderful. If you're not sure what it looks like, go ahead and Google search the 25-foot Jeff Goldblum statue currently in London in honor of the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park, <laughs> and uh, have fun with it. So that's that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, feedback, and questions. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts and friends. Our theme music is composed posed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 